Hi, this is Andrea Borcha. And I'm Charles Wilchin. This is Far Stuff. The Internet of Things podcast. This week on Far Stuff, we talk with Linda Rose, a principal investigator at GE. She spends her time optimizing the world around her with sophisticated sensors, advanced computer visualizations, and cool robotics. Two weeks ago, she delighted crowds at South by Southwest with a 12-foot GE smoker serving up sensor-driven barbecue. And last week, she participated in a robotics challenge held by First, where kids from third grade through high school built smart robots. So my name is Lynn DeRose, and I've been working at GE Global Research for about 25 years now. I'm part of the Distributed Intelligence Systems Group, and what that really means is in GE's software organization, we are the only group that actually touches physical objects. So we're the cyber-physical systems people. We are the ones who go out and sensor up, wire up, identify the devices that then bring back the information into the software systems that GE uses to build out this industrial internet. You're like the field agents. (laughs) You are the ones actually in the field touching the stuff. You're effectively the group that turns factories into smart factories. Is that an accurate depiction of what you do? That is very accurate. That is what we do. We do that in a lot of different ways. We've got projects all the way from working with people who are building new GE factories and putting technology into the new factory before it's even been opened, all the way to going to some of our plants that have been, you know, they're 110 years old, and some of the equipment is 110 years old, and we're adding devices to make those legacy systems smarter as well. Do you find the challenges are more with the technology or the humans running the factory and and altering their habits (laughs) as as you advance and accelerate? Yes. So, you know, dealing with the technology piece is always really interesting because you're always able to learn something new. And if there isn't something new out there, then you can find the right people and you can build something new. So that's the cool part. But the, the people part is the really, really hard part. How do you deal with that part? Because I imagine there's a lot of anxiety and stuff, and you have to be like, everyone calm down. Here's what we're going to do. How does, that, how does that happen? Yeah, so it's really communicating up front and educating people about what you're doing so that they understand that you're not there you know, trying to take their job away or something. There's also a piece of it that when we go into a plant, we don't try to tell the plant what they need. So we let them do the talking to us. So if you're a good listener and you let them define the problem, then they're becoming part of your team to start with. It seems like all the process of modernizing does, in fact, make their lives easier, I would guess, right? It, it makes the entire system more efficient. It helps you figure out where parts are getting broken or there's slowdowns, right? It, it, that's the whole point of this industrial Internet is to make things run better so everyone's lives are easier. That's true. And with more efficiency, you know, you gain things as well. Maybe you gain more output or less cost. The workers themselves could be freed up to do other things that they want to do as well. So it is a win-win. Lynn, how long does that process take? How long are you effectively part of that factory's family going through this process start to finish? Yeah, it could be a few years. 
Um, typically, the way it starts is we would start out with a sort of um, a prototype, do that, practice that, put it in place, and then get their feedback. So it's an iterative process. You know, typically, you'll start out with only a couple pieces of equipment that you're making smart. And then once they see the benefit of it, it grows. So now you're, you're putting this technology into more and more. And so we usually do this as kind of a, a multi-stage rollout. Gotcha. So that first phase, how, what kind of things do you look for? What kind of things do you turn smart at the start of this process? Some of the things we look for, we'll look for things that are what we call our customer's pain points. Um, what is it that bothers you? What is it that you can't find? Where is your bottleneck in the process? And based on that bottleneck and the types of answers that they give us is where we start to think about the technology solution and what it might be. Is that the sort of philosophy that you took to South by Southwest with this recent barbecue endeavor? Yeah, that was a a really interesting endeavor. It was a a lot of fun. And really what we wanted to do at South by Southwest is, you know, we wanted people to know that we don't just make, you know, gas turbines. We don't just make the locomotives, the airplane, the engines that, you know, the big things that you see every single day that actually are affecting people's lives all the time. But we do other things as well. And one of the things, you know, that we wanted to show was this sensor-enabled equipment. Bringing in a generator is not something that people at South by Southwest would want to see, right? Sure. Uh, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't do too much for them. But you bring in, you know, a 12-foot barbecue smoker, and, you know, Texas is all about that. So people become very excited, and they can easily relate to the data that they're seeing and the fact that you're putting sensors on this basically dumb piece of equipment that had no visibility into how it was operating. You're adding sensors to it and you're providing the operator who was the pit master. You're providing that pit master with information about how that piece of equipment is running. And now he's better able to optimize the process in which he runs that piece of equipment. So people could relate to that. They understood it. And it was really, really cool to see their reactions to it. You guys built a 12-foot smoker, put s- sophisticated sensors on it, the same types of sensors you use for other GE equipment. And you could barbecue without ever looking at the meat, and you'd know if the meat was perfectly barbecued. Well, we looked at the meat, but we didn't have to look at it as often. So, so we still looked at it naturally. But instead of wondering whether or not it was cooking properly, we could just look at the data and say, it's cooking properly because the, the oven is at the right temperature. The smoker and the pit is at the right temperature. Don't open the door. Just leave it because it's okay. Where before, you didn't know that. You guys had a great crowd out there, so it must have been amazingly delicious. <laughs> uh, I heard I heard from someone who didn't even tell me that they were there, that it was the best barbecue they had had the whole time. And it's, and it's very analogous to what you do with these factories, because you're taking this dumb piece of equipment, you're adding sensors, you're watching data, you have to decide what the important things to watch are. It's a perfect example because it's very analogous to what you're already doing in factories, just a little bit more fun and delicious. That's exactly right. And that, that's the analogy we wanted people to, to take home with them. The other thing that it seems like you spent a lot of time on is uh, interacting with robots. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure, sure. So the group that I'm in, the Distributed Intelligent Systems Laboratory, has two pillars in which we operate. One of them being machine-to-machine technology and one of them being uh, robotics technology. A few years ago, I 
was the project leader for a project with the Veterans Administration. And we were actually trying to automate their sterile processing center. You can imagine sterile processing center, I don't know if you're aware of this, but, you know, in a hospital, you have to have some sort of a surgery. The surgeon uses certain tools in order to do that surgery. And some of those tools get thrown away because they're considered consumables. Some of them get reused. They're considered reusable surgical instruments. And what happens to those is they actually go down to a room and there's a very standardized process in which those reusable surgical instruments get cleaned and re-sterilized before they go back up to the operating room. Unfortunately, in all hospitals, it is really a process that is very human-driven and humans are prone to errors. And there's been a lot of information in the news where people have gotten sick due to improperly sterilized surgical equipment. So this project was to actually automate the sterilization process. That's what we started to do, and we looked at a mashup of technologies, and we used computer vision technologies, we used auto ID technologies, we used robotic technologies, business system integration, and we built a proof of concept for the Veterans Administration demonstrating how you could use robots and computer vision and auto ID to be able to automate the sterile processing center. What exactly is computer vision? Computer vision is using cameras and images and image analysis. So in this case, the instruments come back from the operating room and they're like in a big bowl. It's just a big mess of instruments, <laughs> right, right? It's a big pile of sterling, of, of silver, high grade stainless steel, silver instruments. And robots can't look at that and figure out what they all are, right? So, because it's very confusing, it's just a silvery mess. So by taking an image of that and having a very, very tiny 2D barcode on each one of the instruments, the camera would take a picture, it would analyze the image that it saw to identify the barcodes that it could read, and then it would figure out which of those instruments was on top using some data analysis again, which of the instruments was on top, and then it would send an XY position to the robot so the robot arm could then go over and pick up the instrument that was on the top of that pile and separate it so it could start the washing process. So it was a beautiful little piece of a computer vision and analysis, a real working system. I suppose it was more of an experiment than anything, but what is the hope for that? Is, do they hope to actually deploy that? Yeah, so we're looking at a couple things right now. There's pieces of it that were very, very effective, and there were pieces of it that didn't work. So, you know, we're doing a sort of a pivot now to say, what is it that we want to do with this? Where do we want to take it? The Veterans Administration does not have a commercialization arm to commercialize this. So our GE Ventures group is looking at external companies that would want to work on the parts that were really, really solid to actually commercialize this and offer it. That is extremely cool. We, we talk about a lot of fun devices here, but I think when it comes to the Internet of Things, we are very excited about, about usage in areas like medical, which, which can really change people's lives. The way this experiment went... You know, could you see robots in the future with all of these tools that you've put together, this kind of ecosystem, being able to do significantly more complicated tasks in the future? And, and how far off do you think we are there? I believe that they could do more complicated tasks. There's technology out there right now showing that robots are doing more complicated tasks. And those tasks that they're doing now are things like, you know, working in space, right? On the space station, you know, they're doing 
complicated things now. The difference in what we're trying to do here is we're trying to work with robots in our robot roadmap now that actually learn things on their own and can be aware of the surroundings in which they're in and make some, some decisions without having a human program it to make the decision. So a lot of the, the complicated tasks that you see robots doing are tasks that someone has said, I, I'm going to teach this robot how to pick up this wrench and tighten this particular bolt that I know is a difficult thing for the humans to reach. And instead of having it programmed into them, there's a certain level of learning that they're doing on their own. They're gathering information about their environment through sensors that are available to the robot, and then they're figuring out, like, where do they have to go or what is the response that they need to do on whatever action they're seeing from the environment. So with that situation, is it that the, the robot is given a particular task and it needs to figure out how to do that, but how it goes about it is entirely its own decision as long as it completes this task? Right, exactly. Like, think about, for instance, the nuclear power plant when Fukushima happened, right? That was a case where people couldn't get in there because of the radiation and all of the contamination that was going on there. Well, you could send a robot in there, but you can't really know what the robot is seeing or tell the robot what to do. The robot goes in there, and so this is a case where the robot would go in there, and then based on what it's seeing and its surroundings, you know, it might take a left, it might take a right. It would just gather as much information as it could and then figure out, like, what are the important things that I, I need to convey back because we, as humans, can't control them once they're in there. We can't see them. We can't control them. At that case, you don't have the Internet, so you can't send you know, a Wi-Fi signal to this robot. So you have to be able to enable the robot to figure out for himself what's the important data that I need to collect so that I can then bring this back and we can figure out what we have to do, what happened, what kind of repair needs to be done in some way. And Lynn, today, like I, I saw the very cute Baxter, by the way, <laughs> I see that you have to train him. What is that process like? I, I think most of our folks listening won't have an idea that that's, you know, that has to happen at some point. And so it'd be interesting to get some insight into how you do that. So Baxter is a case. He's a new type of robot, the next generation of robot. And he is a collaborative robot, which means that he can work with people he is aware of his surroundings. He's aware of people that are around him. And he is very easy to actually program. So there's got three or four buttons on the forearm of his body, of his arms. And by just clicking through some menus, clicking through some buttons and getting some menus up on his face, you're able to tell him what it is you want to do. You're able to train him with what you want to do. So you initially do the task with him. Say you want him to pick up a cup and put it in a box. You actually train him and say, you know, here is the cup and here is the box. And you're using these simple little buttons. You're able to explain to him what you want him to do. Then he has things like a camera in his wrist where you can show him the picture of that cup and he'll look at it from various different heights and angles. He will take a picture of that and, and then He'll know, like, what does that thing look like? And then as more and more of these cups come into his view, he gets that whole picture that he builds for himself better and with a better design so he knows, you know, 
all the time, like he can tell the round cup from the square cup. And he'll leave the, you know, square cup alone because he's only being trained and learning about the round cup. And, and he's now learned that this square cup does not look the same. That's not the one I want. So as he continues to do his task more and more, he keeps storing that data so that his algorithms get better and better and he becomes more exact at the task. I also noticed that Baxter's face or, or whatever, it's basically a screen and that right now his face is eyes that show some sort of reaction or, or emotion. Was that a deliberate decision to help people get more comfortable working with him? Or was that for us to understand him better? Or what was the thought behind that? Well, I think it's both. So it's really important for you and I, when you and I are talking to each other, we have visual clues about each other. I, I know, might know what you're thinking. You might know what I'm thinking. Like, for instance, when Sally and I were talking at the barbecue, you know, you, you know that, you know, we really hit it off because of our facial expressions. So it's important, like, as humans, we really count on that. We look at how people are reacting to what we're saying. So it's important that there was some visual clue to Baxter so that you know if he's happily working or if he's run out of cups to pick up, his face goes sad because he's <laughs> not, you know, <laughs> it, it is a cute little sad face too. Um, but that's a visual cue to the human that, you know, oh, something's wrong with Baxter. I better go check on him. Why is he sad? So it's both for humans to feel comfortable but it also gives you immediate feedback. You know, you might be busy and not even notice that Baxter ran out of cups. Right. But if you look sad, if you look sad, <laughs> you're going to say, "Why is Baxter sad?" That's adorable. <laughs> Recently, too, you participated in the first robotics competition. How oh did that yes, go? that was a great experience. The first robotics competition. We had a regional competition here in the Northeast at the um, RPI, which is a uh, one of the colleges here. And we had 37 teams competing. The um, challenge this year was a recycled challenge. And they have six weeks to build a robot that was able to pick up trash cans, pick up recycle bins, toss the little pool noodles. So depending <laughs> on, it was funny, yeah. You can imagine these robots were, oh my goodness, they were like, I think it was 72 inches tall. Wow. Was the, was the height. They were, they were big robots. <laughs> yeah. And these kids were uh, just seeing their creativity is just amazing when you're working with them. And I got to be a judge this year. I was a, I was a robot inspector this year. Perfect. It was great to be able to get in there and actually like touch each one of these robots and see the kids and their enthusiasm. And what's really great about first competitions is that, you know, the kids, it's not like, competition that you see at other sporting events these kids are all working together they're helping each other you know if one team runs out of something or something breaks you know they put it over the loudspeaker does somebody else have this motor controller because team 36 wants you know broke it and they need they need a replacement and, and someone's over there giving them another part that's really exciting. And, and these kids are young. They're in high school, right? Yes, they are. They have four levels, actually. And they start with third grade. Whoa, that sounds like so much fun. And you help them with the software installs. Were they doing sort of a Baxter-like model where they were teaching it that way? Or were they actually doing some coding? They had to write code, right? So, so they get a kit of parts. 
and they're they're given a you know a power distribution board. They're given a certain number of motors. They're given a certain number of motor controllers, and then certain versions of software that they can use to write the code to make everything else on the robot work. What we were doing was inspecting the hardware to make sure they had all the right hardware and all the right versions of software so that everybody starts with exactly the same thing. What they do with it after that is where all of their creativity comes in. And they do write the code themselves. I'm guessing you started, you know, handing out some uh, requests, make sure you could poach these kids when they're (laughs) out of college and ready to go. (laughs) Exactly. When you're on summer break, I have some work for you. (laughs) And the final results, do they kind of approach a similarity at their end, or are they just radically different where you're like, what the hell is this? Thing? <laughs> yeah, no, uh, and, and that's interesting, too. So they, they have all of these different types of tasks that they need to do with these robots, and then what happens is they can do some of these things well, and then other of the tasks they can't do as well. And so the second part of the competition is they, after they all go through qualifiers, they choose teams to form an alliance with. So it isn't just the kids that are building the robot and doing the software. They have got other kids who are walking around the pits and interviewing the other teams to see what their playing configuration, what is their strategy for playing, so that they recognize what their weaknesses in their robot. And when it comes to the second round of forming alliances, they'll align themselves with someone who is strong in the place that they're weak. That's brilliant. It really is. It's really teaching kids about not just it's about me and I need to know how to do this on my own, but it's about leveraging the people around you and and acknowledging your weaknesses. I mean, it sounds like an amazing growing opportunity for kids. It is an amazing organization. I mean, when you see that stuff going on, you're just like, wow, these kids are like, they're (laughs) ninth grade. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I was just curious because you'd talked a little bit before we started recording about some asset tracking, not for like things, but for actually like things like uh, cells and things for research. Yeah, so that's a very exciting project that we're doing right now. It is around a new process in which late stage cancer patients are being treated and it's around T-cell therapy. So um, it is a, a process where people are... They, they're giving their blood. It's called autologous CAR T-cell therapy. And people give their blood. Then it goes to this blood manufacturing facility. So at the manufacturing facility, the T-cells are grown. It is given some steps of the process that change the blood. And then they regrow the amount of blood that was taken from the person to begin with. And then they give it back to the person. And it is being very effective for the treatment of certain types of cancer out there. Understanding, it's a manufacturing process, and understanding how all of the pieces come together, how it is, it goes from step one through step N, and making sure that it goes through that process correctly, and all of the peripherals that are involved are the correct peripherals, are something that we are looking at tracking right now. And it's a very exciting process because it's, it's a little bit different than anything we've traveled, you know, tracked before. But it's still a manufacturing process. And understanding how everything is interconnected is extremely important because knowing, you know, which operator, which piece of equipment, what the consumables were that were used on that particular sample are very important because that sample has to go back to the same person that it was taken out of. It is dramatically different from 
you know, donating blood or donating bone marrow. You know, that, that goes to a blood bank and then it can be distributed to other people. In this case, it comes out of one person, has to go back to one person. Gotcha. So there's lots of sensors involved to make sure that these tagged assets are going to the right places, that they've been to the right stages, and they get back to the place that they came from. It sounds like with a lot of your projects, it's the same concepts, just in multiple arenas. So we started talking about how you can improve a factory by tracking the assets and making sure that they go through the right process and they're in the right place when they need to be. And here you're tracking blood samples are you tracking people? Can you track animals? Can you, what, what kind of other projects have you used as considered asset tracking in larger ecosystems? Well, we've tracked a lot of things for General Electric. Some tracking airplane parts. We do uh, repair parts for our GE transportation, which builds our locomotives. We have tracked parts as they come inbound from other countries. Um, to build wind towers. We uh, actually have got a tracking device and a a business that was started um, that tracks trailers. So every single Walmart trailer out there in the world has a GE tracking device on it. It's a big fleet of Walmart trailers too. So you guys work on a massive scale. And so you have an amazing view into all this stuff. Did this stuff exist 10 years ago? When did it really become the norm? Well, I think it existed but it wasn't widely used and it is becoming more and more widely used now. I think people are understanding that in order to get really the next level, having to track things is is required. If you really want to have a brilliant factory or smart machines, you know, you need to start tracking at the very lowest level of raw material because you have to know what goes into into it and you have to know where it is. You have to know that it's the right stuff. And if you're not doing that lower level tracking, you can never get the benefit at the high level that that people really want to see. And you're doing this all around the world. Yes, we are. Do you travel to these places that you consult with or do you commute (laughs) (laughs) or do you live there when you go? So with the types of collaborative ways that you can communicate now, you don't really need to go there and stay there. It's possible to telepresence, instant email, texting. You can still text. That's right. Lynn, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. And we'll put up some links to the robotics competition and the uh, tastiest barbecue ever made by a sensor barbecue. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Next time, though, I need to have some sent to me at home. I'm telling you, everybody's asking me if we're if we're actually going to be making smokers, and I'm like, <laughs> no, but we are. We are adding sensors to our factory legacy equipment. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, okay, that's almost as good as barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Lynn. Oh, thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Far Stuff, the Internet of Things podcast. You can find us on the internet at farstuff.com and at farstuff on Twitter. Get in touch with us using the contact form at farstuff.com or email us at podcast at farstuff.com. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To get the best Internet of Things news every week, sign up for our email newsletter at farstuff.com. And this brings us to the end of our thing. Thanks for listening. <laughs>